Welcome to Career Tools. This week, choosing a company to work for, Chapter 1, The Factors to Consider, Part 1. Okay, Wendy, one of the things people tell us all the time is they're trying to decide how to, you know, give us some guidance, Career Tools guidance on how to choose which job should I take. And of course, there's factors to consider job and company and uh, there's all kinds of factors. And in this cast, we're going to be talking about the factors to consider when evaluating the company, almost the sub-factors underneath how good a company is comparing companies if you have multiple offers, right? Exactly. Or companies that you uh, are going to go after if you if you are starting to starting a job search. Ah. So you don't know about jobs, but you know about local companies or you know companies that you might want to work for. These are some factors to consider in that very early part of your search. Right. Would you say that that there are plenty of people who go looking for a job when in fact smart people take time to think about the companies because in fact you're really going to work for a company unless you're literally just a job hopper, which would be a bad idea. And that this part of this guidance is to say, not only here's how to consider it, but you also need to start considering this much earlier in your search. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things people say is people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. And the the reason for that is, is that bosses change all the time. And so you can't say, oh, he's a great boss, so this is going to be a great job. But if you can say, ah, oh, yeah. this is a great company, the environment, the culture, the opportunities suit me, you're much more likely to have a longer term satisfaction within that company than you are if you choose on something like boss or money or something kind of ephemeral. And if you have a better quality company, the odds are higher you'll have better quality bosses because bosses figure in enormously into the standards of the company. That's too true. Good. Okay. So what factors, what sub-factors do we look at when we're thinking about companies? Okay. So we're going to go through these. Uh, Compensation. We start with compensation. That blows people away. Coming from career tools, it'll blow people away. And (laughs) we'll explain why in a minute, folks. Yeah. So compensation values, industry stability reputation, opportunities, location, financials, and customer base. It's a pretty long list. Yeah. I think the history of career tools is we would have put values first, but in fact, we have compensation first. Why? Well, that's because that's what everybody thinks. Everybody, whenever (laughs) anybody says, I'm thinking about a new job, uh, the first thought in everybody's mind is, will I get the same compensation that I get now um, or will I get more? Those, those are the two questions. Where do I sit and how much do I get? Exactly. And yeah. you, okay. you rarely, I mean, people talk about opportunities and progression and working on something exciting, but you rarely hear somebody say, oh, I moved jobs for the opportunity and I took a pay cut. Right. Because people just don't do that. Can I at least prove the rule by suggesting an exception, which is me, because when I got out of the army, In 1986, 87, I was making $35,000 as a captain, and I had an offer for $39,000 with Nalco Chemical, $39,900 to be exact, and I took the job with Proctor at $26,600. I didn't not notice that my offer at Proctor at $26,600, which was exactly two-thirds of my offer at Nalco at $39,900, and what's more, Nalco had bonus and commission, and Proctor had neither. So when you say nobody does it, actually, one person. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I think I took a third pay cut to come here, so it do, it does happen, but it's rare. Yeah, we please say out loud that we made it up. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when we're talking compensation here, guys, we're not just talking the job you're going to take. 
we're talking about evaluating the company relative to compensation and how it will do, how it's known, um, as opposed to just, am I going to make a few thousand dollars more? If they, if you get the top end of a range and your pay doesn't go up for five years, or you get an extra, you, you, you get hired at a job higher than you should, and you don't get promoted for several years, and the company has very narrow pay ranges, then you've had a datum which has misled you regarding your ability to continue making more money long-term. So that's really what we're talking about here is the company's compensation history practices culture, if you will. Is that, is, is that what we're attempting to share? Yeah, exactly. So you can usually find out on the, on the grapevine whether a company is low-paying or high-paying compared with other companies in its industry or other, pay, or other places in their location. Usually... Places where people want to work pay less. So Google and Facebook and and you know all the places that are popular tend to pay less because they don't have they don't have to pay more in order to attract people. B two B companies tend to pay more because they have to pay more in order to attract people because people don't know about them. Yeah, let me say that again, guys. If you didn't hear what she said, she said B two B, and that means business to business. It's one of the fundamental mistakes that young people make about their careers. I ask people, where do you want to go to work, and they say Google, Nike, Apple, mm-hmm. and then if you're technical, they say Microsoft or IBM. But the only reason they say those companies is those are the companies that they see advertising for, or purchase products they use, or or purchase. And the mistake is. Like for instance, I mentioned Nalco Chemical, a great, great company, super people there, and nobody's ever heard of it in the consumer space because they sell water treatment chemicals to other big companies. And Cisco, another great company, SYSCO, is a it, not the networking company. Cisco, the food service company. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in, in the world haven't heard of Cisco. Um, or for instance, Sodexo, also a food service supplier logistics company. Nobody's ever heard of it. And it's an extremely well-managed company. And they're a lot bigger than a lot of grocery stores and they're in the food business, but because they sell to other, to restaurants and hotels and, and they wholesale food to people who sell food retail, people don't talk about it. And that's, it's important consideration that what Wendy just said is B2B has to pay more because they don't have the street cred, the credit, the, the cachet that a Google, a Microsoft, an IBM, an Apple does. Yeah, so and that's usually on the grapevine. You, I bet if you Googled pay at Google, you'd find out roughly. You know, I bet there's a million yeah. websites. Well, and, and, and we're gonna we'll have a series of casts in which we say, here are the various websites in which you could go find out. We we st- we shy away from that generally because the websites are constantly changing. The, some are good, some are not, but you know, salary.com is not a bad one at all nope. in terms of finding out various jobs. Yeah, exactly. And the benefits are usually there too. You know, who doesn't know about the free food at Google? Yeah, and, and the key thing is, is folks, we're not telling you we would put this first. And in fact, we're telling you we would not put compensation first, but we know you're going to want to know it. Your spouse is probably going to want to know it. It's absolutely something to consider. And, and frankly, the rank order of this list we're giving you is not nearly as important as the fact that you have a discussion about all these things, you have them in your factoring, your consideration, and you may very well weight them differently. Different people will weight different ones differently. And that's fine, but these are the factors you can't miss. Yeah. Okay, values. Tell me about values. 
Okay, so so most companies have written value statements. Public companies especially have them in their um, statement of results at the end of the year. They usually have them on their website. But companies right. are made up of people, and people don't yes. always act in the accor- in accordance with value statements. I used, I used how can to, that be? How can that <laughs> how be? Can that be? How, Wendy, how can that be? <laughs> I used to You've tempt burst my bubble. <laughs> I used to tempt somewhere where um, the value statement was in all the. Um, all of the elevators, and we all used to get in and just look at them and laugh because nobody acted yeah. that way. It was very cutthroat, and nobody yes. was really kind yep. to each other. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. And there is usually an informal culture as well as a formal one, and there might even be different cultures in different parts of the organization if it's big enough. It's funny. I'm, I'm sitting here listening and going, you're absolutely right. And then I remember the story of the Tylenol disaster in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, my favorite corporate value statement is Johnson and Johnson's credo. And as it happens right now, one of my classmates, Alex Gorski, is, is, is the CEO of J&J. And J&J is one of the most storied companies in the history of mankind. And guys, there are plenty of non-American companies. I mean, Royal Dutch Shell comes to mind very quickly as a, as a truly great company in the history of, of humankind. But J&J is up there and was up there long before the Tylenol scare. For those of you who don't know, who are too young to remember, in the 1980s, there were some Tylenol. Tylenol was the analgesic of choice, the not painkiller, I guess, but essentially aspirin substitute of choice, acetaminophen. And uh, some essential domestic terrorist poisoned a bunch of Tylenol capsules with cyanide. And I want to say, please, you no need to correct me, but I want to say eight to 10 to 12 people died. And it was a, a horrible thing. For those of you who are used to buying analgesics now, you have to take a cap off. It's not easy. You then have to poke through a, a foil wrapper, and then you also have to probably pull some cotton out of the thing. That's called the triple triple defense or something like that, which came about because of the Tylenol scare. And uh, the CEO of Tylenol made a decision that if, in fact, they were going to live by the values of J&J, they must pull every bottle of Tylenol off the shelf simply to, re- to eliminate any possibility that any person would ever be hurt again by Tylenol. And their PR people would say, no, 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 you got to manage it. And he says, no, this is wrong. It's simple. We don't hurt people. It's a rule. It's like it's, we serve doctors and nurses. And, and so you don't do that. And it was against PR rules, but it was the right thing to do. And frankly, I have friends who went to J&J for that very reason, came out of the military or went from another job and went to J&J, to Johnson Johnson, because this is a company who, when the, when the chips are down, when the crap is hitting the fan, J&J lived according to its values. They pulled all the stuff off the shelves. They took a gigantic sales hit, cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, and they didn't care because the Johnson & Johnson credo is very long. I want to say it's 100 words, 80 words, 88 words, something like that. And it says something like this. Our first responsibility is the doctors, nurses, patients, mothers, and fathers who use our products. And then it lists a bunch of other things about how they're going to do business. It includes suppliers. It includes all kinds of other things. And the last line of the J&J Credo says, and when we operate according to these principles, our shareholders should realize a fair return. Shareholders are last. And if you read Harvard Business Review, guys, in the last 10 years, it's all this stuff about stakeholders and shareholders and so on. And it's kind of funny to read about CSR, corporate social responsibility, and and J&J doesn't get talked about. But to me, they lived their values, and they were the ultimately 
ultimate socially responsible corporation in a moment of what was horrific news. And I would like to say that we started with, with, with compensation because that's what everybody wants to hear about. We would not weight that one most heavily. We would weight values most heavily. If you feel good about the values and you don't worry that your boss is going to do something unethical or illicit because this, your company hires the kind of people who don't do those kind of things. Uh, and, and by the way, no MBA school is ever going to teach ethics to some 25-year-old. When you do that, you have a peace of mind that makes you feel good that you won't lose your job if you stand up for the right thing. So... And as when he said, you can you can learn about companies' values. There there are chat rooms, and of course, we'll have a series in which you will tell you how to learn all these things. This is an initial cast to try to help you understand what to be thinking about. If we try to drill down on each one of these things, where to find them, how to find them, the websites you go to, and so on, this would be a five-hour-long cast. Okay, so the next one is um, industry stability. So. You can, if you want to, ride a dying industry down to the bottom. You could if you chose to. Yeah. If you think I've got 20 years and this industry's got 20 years, then ride it all the way out. That As long as you're making a conscious choice, that's yeah. a reasonable choice. You can wait for somebody to work out how to revive or restore the industry. I read something the other day that some guy has worked out how to get oil out of wood, just like cut down trees. And he is reopening wood paper processing plants, I think in Alabama, and retooling them to produce oil and rehiring the people that were laid off five years ago who know how to operate the Fascinating. plant. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And so the, the point here, when you start out by saying you could ride a dying industry down at the bottom, our point here is most people don't think about they think about the company, particularly if it's a consumer products company. They think about the company and the company's name and so on. And there are many people in the world today that are listening to us, perhaps for the first time, who think, Apple, what could possibly be wrong with Apple? Well, guys, well, 20 years ago, Apple was worthless. Apple was, I mean, I consulted to Apple in 1999, and <laughs> let me tell you, it was a very different place. And so you have to understand not just the company, but the industry you're in. To be in Silicon Valley in 2001 was to be almost in, in a form of a ghost town, at least in terms of the amount of dollars that had been floating around, were floating around compared to two years before. But I don't think that's fair, Wendy, because we want to look at stability. But, but the fact is, we don't want some person to be making a decision because, ooh, that industry appears to be in a dip. Because all industries go through dips. Yeah. So there's, there's cyclical industries, which means they increase when the economy is stronger. So think about um, consumer goods, for example, TVs. People buy more TVs right. when the economy is stronger because they feel richer. Exactly. So, so guys, just to, I just want to make sure you heard her. An industry that is cyclical is one that goes up when the economy is booming. The economy hasn't been good lately, so probably some of the stocks that are cyclical have not been doing well. Those companies have not been growing as fast. Um, consumer products, for instance, have been struggling. We've seen the closure, this is 2013, we're recording this, we've seen the closure of a lot of electronic stores because that's a cyclical industry. The market has been down, the economy has been down all over the world, in many places anyway. There are places where that's not true, but globally the market has been down and therefore those industries which are cyclical have been suffering. But then there are also countercyclicals, right? Yeah. So a countercyclical company um, increases when the economy is weaker. So, um, for example, Home Depot and Lowe's, those kind of um, home home 
renovation companies. Yeah, do it yourself. Um, home renovation companies do better when the economy is low because people don't pay someone else to fix their house and they don't move. They renovate their own house. And so they're right. better industries in the, in a dip. Right. And the point here, folks, is you need to know the difference. If you decide you really like electronics and you want to go to work at Best Buy, that's fine. But if you don't know that it's cyclical and you're being hired at the top of a market and the market goes south and you're last in in terms of being hired, you may very well be first out. That's called LIFO, last in, first out. Um, because you don't have any tenure, if there are layoffs, you might be first. Um, if you don't know that you're joining a counter-cyclical industry and wonder why, as the economy is heating up, you're not getting more opportunities, it's because you don't understand that your business won't grow as fast as others when the economy is going well. You have to consider this stuff. It's not dispositive. In other words, for those of you who don't know, that means it doesn't dispose of the question. In other words, it, it's, it's not the, the critical factor, but you have to know. And you have to ask yourself, at this point in my career, am I 25 or am I 50, would you want to join a counter-cyclical company in a booming economy when you're 55? Holy Toledo, you would not. You'd be crazy because you would probably lose a lot of earning power at a time when you needed to really reinforce your earning power or putting away money for your retirement. Exactly. So people always have to eat. That, that's one of the uh, things people say. So people always have to eat. So the food, um, it's always good to be in the food chain, but the food chain is pretty competitive. And there's companies with really big brands like um, Twinkies have just gone out of business, right? That's food, but the kind of food that we're being told to eat and the, what the consumer wants has changed and has changed. they've gone out of business. Right. So don't follow maxims like, oh, people always have to eat. Well, here's another point about people always have to eat. Because people always have to eat, there are a lot of people competing for food dollars. Mm -hmm. When a lot of people compete for food dollars, folks, margins decrease. I, I always tell the story about how much does a grocery store make on every dollar you spend? And the answer is, generally, it's, it's a bit of a, it's not exactly correct, but it's a good answer. It's a penny. They make a penny on every dollar. Grocery store chains are now, now they're in the food business, but of course, indirectly, um, they're in the food chain, but they don't actually produce food, although they certainly have private labels, but they make a, a penny and, and they're really good at operating a business because they know their margins are only a penny. And if they make a penny mistake, they don't make any profit that much. You compare that to Intel. Intel at one point, I'm pretty sure it's gross margins were 50%. If they sold you a chip for 200 bucks, they only had $100 worth of cost in it. So if they make a mistake, now look, we don't want anybody making mistakes, but if they make a mistake, their profits give them a little bit more cushion. Now, there are people who would argue, yes, Mark, but the reason their profits are so big in each one is because they have to afford another billion dollar chip bab every time they build a new, and you're absolutely right. But the, my point is, is that if you go into a business where there is a lot, a lot, a lot of competition, and the fundamental need is there's gonna be demand for food every day, virtually everywhere in the world, that means there are a lot of people who want to want to supply that demand. The more people that enter a market, look at Michael Porter's five forces, you end up with more competition, which drives prices down. So if you expect to get rich working for a grocery store, you're nuts. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Starting one, maybe, and being the sole owner, you might make some money. 
let's talk about uh, reputation. Reputation. Okay, so working for one of the great well-known companies, lots of which we've already mentioned in this cast, helps you in two ways. First, you get to work for a great company. Yeah, that's the first one. People say, oh, I'm choosing that because it looks good on my resume. Yeah. <clears throat> no, you should, you should do it because, yes, that's true, but more importantly because you're working for a great company and great companies tend to overdevelop and people tend to have a better experience. That's why they're great. And what you just said was the second point. You get to have a great company name on your resume. So future hiring yeah. managers will assume that because you were really, you have IBM or Procter & Gamble or Johnson & Johnson on your resume that, that you were, you're a successful professional, mostly because those companies weed out people who are not successful pretty quickly because they're good companies. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, t I tell this story all the time, and I actually had somebody, I want to say in Sydney recently, hello, folks, they questioned me about it. I, I said, look, the, the reason I went to West Point and the reason, I chose, the reason I chose Procter & Gamble is because I read somewhere back when I didn't know anything, 1985 or something, that Procter & Gamble was the West Point of corporate America. I had gone to West Point specifically because I didn't know where I was going to end up, but I knew it would never hurt me, ever, ever. And the same thing is true about Harvard as an example. Okay, uh, Wendy and I were just talking about MBA schools. We're going to do a cast on MBAs, choosing M how to choose your MBA, which MBAs are good. And of course, that changes, and we try to do things that are timeless rather than timely. But we know people want to know, and then we get that question all the time. Well, Harvard tends to be at the top or near the top every single time. And I tell people all the time about Harvard, the, the old saying about everybody wants to get to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Heaven knows how to put a price on its goods. If you want the ultimate joy, the ultimate perfection for the rest of eternity, you're going to have to pay. If it was only a nickel to get into heaven, everybody would pay. Everybody would be there, right? Scarcity implies something. It's hard to get into Harvard, and therefore, it's true that getting into Harvard means something. By the same token, because getting into Harvard is going to mean something, Harvard makes it hard to get in. And that's true of, of many things in the world that are exclusive, if you will. I think that word has a negative tone in many cases now. But Harvard is the definition of exclusive because they exclude people, lots of people. Most people don't realize that the university, in the U.S. anyway, guys, that has the lowest acceptance rate, percentage acceptance rate, is the military academy. I think it's like 11% or last year it was 9% or something like that. Part of that is because of the, the, the tone of the world right now but it's very hard to get into so therefore th there's an assumption among people like wendy and i when we look at an ibm resume or an intercontinental hotels group resume or a four seasons resume or but what are some of the other, well shoot google yeah. um google's hard to get hired at anybody in the fortune yeah. 500 <laughs> Um, or at least 100. Yeah, even I would argue maybe even in the Fortune 1000 in many cases because they're known and so more people apply. And so by definition, if more people apply and we assume the same level of recruiting intellect, which is fairly certain, mm -hmm. um, there's variations, but it's a reasonable assumption to make in analyzing the, the market that exists in talent, you're going to have a better caliber of people. And if companies are growing, it's not because they have a bunch of idiots working there who don't know what the heck they're doing, right? It's not like Google is full of idiots, but they have one guy with a bunch of great ideas that does all the work. And, and so reputation not only helps in terms of it's unlikely that it's unearned, I think maybe the example that I would, I would suggest in the last 20 years is Enron, but 
that reputation is earned. So you're going to be associated with better people. You help your network enormously because those people are going to trade upon the reputation of your firm. And if it's harder to get into and you get hired, it means something to the people. It is the opposite of guilt by association. It is literally it's the halo success effect. by association. It's the halo effect. Exactly. Yeah. But let's also say, I think what we just did was talk anybody ever out to come talk <laughs> to anybody for from ever coming to work for Manager Tools, right? And we certainly don't think, folks, that you should go to work for P&G necessarily. In fact, many people are astounded to find that many of the greatest companies in the world, you can't get hired anywhere but at the bottom because that's the way they do it. They know that if they only hire at the bottom, they better learn to develop their people and they don't have an out of going outside the company for some middle manager if they haven't developed them. Um, but the other piece is, we also talked to everybody out of coming to work for us. So we're not telling people that they shouldn't go to work for a small company, are we? No, absolutely. You can go work for a small company that nobody's ever heard of and be very happy there. One of, one of my friends was miserable in a job that I worked with him in, and he went to work for a small company that produced the light switches for private hospitals, like the backplates for light switches. That's all they did. And that company was making money hand over fist. Nobody outside building hospitals industry had ever heard of them. And he was happy as Larry. So none of these factors out, well, some of them outweigh others, but none of them, none, they all have positives and negatives. And you've got to right. weigh them all exactly. up together and not take any single piece of information yeah. as the deciding factor. And folks, if you're in America or somewhere else overseas and not a member of the Commonwealth, we're going to have a brief British to American translation, and it's going to help me as well, Wendy. We, I don't think many of us have ever heard the phrase, happy as Larry. Oh. That sounds like Bob's your uncle. <laughs> um, so happy as Larry. Happy as Larry would translate as to happy as a clam? or Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, good. I don't know who Larry like is, but apparently he's happy. <laughs> yeah, he's happy. Like a pig in mud. Okay, everybody, that's it for chapter one, part one. Come back next week and we'll finish up with part two. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>